This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Carlos Moedas. Carlos Moedas is the European Commissioner responsible for research, science, and innovation. Um, Carlos, we're going to try and cover all three aspects of your portfolio in the time we have ahead of us, so let's get cracking. First of all, on, on research, you basically oversee this enormous Horizon 2020 research program uh, with a budget, I think, of 80 billion euros, correct me if I'm wrong, over seven years. That's a huge amount of money in anybody's uh, uh, definition. Um, I understand that in the new Juncker Commission, you didn't want to just have a, a big budget for research, but also to, to prioritize more clearly how the money is spent. How is that working in the new Commission? Hello, Paul. Thank you very much for the, uh, the interview. Glad to, to be here. Uh, probably just uh, one step back uh, to the program, which is the basically the overarching uh, vision for Europe in terms of science and innovation. We've called it the uh, three O's the open innovation, open science, and open to the world. And so Horizon 2020 is a tool to achieve that goal of an innovation that is open and centered in the user and in the digital world, a science that has to be open, and a science that will be open data, open access uh, in the future. And we've just decided that with the 28 ministers around the table. And then uh, a science and innovation that is open to the world because we live in a global um, environment and to be the best you have to be global and so uh, the way we allocate the money in Horizon 2020 is basically uh, somehow around these subjects so one third of the money goes to fundamental science so what we call curiosity driven research uh, there's where we uh, basically had the man the Nobel Prize now that he invented graphene for instance was one of the grantees of our research council then we have one third that are going to industry, to uh, small and medium enterprises uh, that are helping to develop the new kind of companies of the future. And another third of the money goes basically to what we call societal challenges. And that for me is a little bit of the change that is coming on the world, is that you cannot solve a problem from one discipline, you have to come from different angles. And so the societal challenge is not about research or innovation in one field, it's about a challenge and then around that challenge how do you solve it? And you can solve a challenge from different angles. And so that's the way uh, we see it and that's the way we're doing it, uh, is basically into a world of openness and how we can go through that journey of openness in Europe. Okay, this might seem a rather narrow, even a petty point, but bear with, hear me out. Um, it is often said in the outside world that when uh, uh, people in the outside will want to access and apply uh, for funds from European programs, including Horizon 2020, it is a bureaucratic nightmare. It is difficult to apply for funds, there's so much paperwork, so many layers of bureaucracy, that to be fair to you guys, inside the building you have to comply with it because that is how you do things. Have you made any, 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 taken any steps, made any improvements in the last 18 months since you became Commissioner in this area to try and streamline the, the actual process? It seems a boring point, but an important point. No, it's a very, very important point and, and it's crucial because you have to uh, basically have a, a real balance in between having rules because you're accountable to the taxpayer and so uh, you have to have uh, really ways of controlling but at the same time you have to create a process that is simple 
that researchers don't spend their time actually doing bureaucracy and they're doing research and innovation. And so uh, there was a big change before me uh, from the old program called the Framework Program 7 to Horizon 2020. And that uh, gave a lot of uh, really a, a big change in terms of getting it simpler. So what we've been doing in these 18 months was basically to go to a second wave, uh, second wave of really reducing the bureaucracy getting in simpler so we did uh, basically we went to all the stakeholders we sent more than 5,000 requests uh, to people saying what do you think we should do mm. uh, I mean is it really complicated uh, what's the pros because the problem is not uh, the the problem is not one there's several problems and so each pro some of them are more bureaucratic than others and so now we uh, we got all the information and we are going through the process of changing the rules to actually get it even more simpler but there's a limit to that simplicity which is yeah. the accountability to the taxpayer but uh, i think that a lot of the people that talk about it sometimes they're actually talking about experiences they had in fp7 the program before uh, we in this uh, really a questionnaire that we send to our stakeholders and to people that are our clients uh, it was very interesting because a lot of them said, uh, really the big majority, that they think Horizon 2020 is simpler than their national programs. Okay. And, and that's a good thing. But it's not that it's uh, already there. We have to do more. So uh, that's one of the, the major things we're doing is that on the simplification, uh, streamlining, getting it really simple for people to do it. One of our uh, major flagships, which is a program of innovation for small and medium enterprises called the SME Instrument, today is just very simple. It's 10 pages. I mean, okay. we limited that to 10 pages of bureaucracy. And so people fill up 10 pages, give us an idea. If the idea is good, we give them 50,000 euros. If the idea is not good, I mean, they get stuck or sometimes it's good, but we don't have enough money to, to fund. Um, and then if it's uh, really good after one year, we can go up to 2 million, 3 million euros, which is uh, pretty good for a startup. So uh, we we're getting there, but uh, it's a it's a fair it's a very important point. Okay, that's good to hear. Let's move on now, if we may, uh, Carlos, to the the science part of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, when the the new Juncker Commission took office uh, over eighteen months ago, the decision was taken not to renew the contract of the then uh, chief scientific officer. A lot of concern was was expressed at the time. Was this was this a signal by the new commission that science was less important uh, in the new commission compared to the previous commission? Can you explain what's what's happened now? What is the new system for for seeking and and making input from uh, getting input rather from the from the science community into policy making? Well, you know, very good. I think that uh, what uh, we had before was a first experience with a fantastic uh, person, uh, Anne Glover, Professor Anne Glover, and it was the first time uh, that there was a chief scientific advisor in the European Union. And so, uh, what we decided that President Juncker asked me personally was to see. One, is it working as we want? Should we do something about it? And uh, by talking actually with Professor Ann Glover, which helped us a lot, we um, re really thought at the time that it would be good to enlarge the group and have a group of chief scientific advisors mm -hmm. and not one person. How many in so this group? There are seven people. Right. Uh, and so they come from different countries, but they are all top top scientists of the world, just to give you one example, I could give all the examples, but this one is probably more known. One of the persons was the former Director General of CERN uh, in Switzerland. So you're talking about that level of science. 
And so these group of people, there are seven, and then they have a group of 20 people, 20, 25 people in our department, in mm -hmm. my department of research, that are really the machine, the operational machine. And the idea of the scientific advice mechanism is to change the way we do policy and politics in Europe, uh, that we can incorporate scientific evidence. So what they do is that they have urgent matters, uh, when Ebola came up or uh, Zika, though, then you have to look at it. Uh, then you have more medium-term matters, which are basically the work program of the Commission. So what are we legislating? And so if we are legislating, do we need scientific advice and input on that proposal of legislation? And then there's the what I call the long-term matters. I mean, what are the big challenges of the world? And so they uh, look at it and they actually give us the input. And my colleagues in the college, they are their clients. And so, or uh, well, the other way around. So <laughs> my, uh, my colleagues ask them to look at different uh, points. So we've started already. They are working uh, in two uh, very crucial subjects. One is cybersecurity, so mm -hmm. they're working on, on that subject. And the other one is on CO2 emissions uh, in real time uh, in, uh, in cars and, and light vehicles. And so uh, we will have scientific evidence that then can actually be part of our legislative process and our proposals, and, and that's the way it should be. Because I think that uh, the Anglo-Saxon system historically has much more of that. I mean, the chief scientific advisors are typical of Anglo-Saxon systems. In the continental or the more uh, continental Europe, you normally don't have that. So we had to create a system that works in both uh, worlds and that is actually a help for politicians. Because at the end of the day, you know, politicians, they don't, take uh, really decisions based on scientific evidence. Mm. Scientific evidence has to be there, should be there, but then there's other matters. There's ideology, there's the, the will of the people that, I mean, votes mm. for, for those representatives. And so the role is that the politicians, they so far, they had or they take decisions without that evidence. Now they have the evidence, but it doesn't mean that they will take the decision with uh, that direction of the evidence, but it's essential for policy making. Well, I can see I can see where you're coming from because uh, it's one thing to have science based policy making, evidence based policy making. I've heard the phrase more recently used about yes, we should, but we shouldn't have science dictated policy making. And you threw in the word a couple of times of politics and politicians. But and I think we all understand that politics is part of the of the equation. But how do you strike a balance between science evidence on the one hand and the, the political realities on the other? in any given dossier? I see the, the, the scientific evidence as one piece of the puzzle. So, um, you know, I think that uh, politicians, they need to have that evidence in their hands to take that decision. But uh, the way I see it is that the scientific evidence comes on to the table telling them what's known and what's unknown, because the scientific evidence doesn't tell you everything. Right. It tells you right. options, tells you that, look, the gap, what we call the inferential gap, the gap in between what I know and what I don't know, uh, what's that gap? Because that is important for the decision. And you know, a lot of the, the points that in Europe are, are quite of, um, difficult points in terms of geology that mixes with, with science, 
I think that the way to go is not to tell people more about the evidence, is to explain them the scientific process. So if you're talking about a subject, being it uh, the difficult ones uh, that uh, we have in Europe from the shale gas or, or things that we don't know yet where the, mm -hmm. the, the, the unknown is, is being, to tell them, look, so far science, science tells us this, and the process to get there, the scientific process is as follows. We gather information, we get together all these scientists, and then we take uh, decisions and we see where the knowledge is. And that is very important for uh, also educating uh, people in the street how science works. Okay, well, as maybe as a way to move on to the final part of our, of our conversation on innovation, let's briefly talk about, if we may, about the, the innovation principle. Now, for those people listening who don't know what that is, and the business groups like Business Europe just sort of make the statement that mm -hmm. institutions, when they're producing policy or regulatory proposals, should make sure that the impact on innovation should be fully assessed and addressed. I mean, I, I'm assuming you, you would broadly agree with that. If not, tell me, put me straight. <laughs> uh, and to the extent you agree with it, how, how confident are you that you are putting this into practice uh, in your daily work? No, so uh, uh, first of all, I think that uh, the innovation principle is crucial and is crucial in Europe also because of the question of perception. Uh, uh, there is sometimes a perception about Europe that Europe um, has a lot of barriers to innovation. Mm. And so having the innovation principle is like changing perception too. Because if you look at, look at the precautionary principle, which comes here in opposition uh, to the innovation principle, it's actually not, in that, it's not that opposite, because the precautionary principle, if you read it, it also talks also about innovation. And can they but coexist? Are they mutually inclusive or exclusive? I, I think it's a question of interpretation. Right. And because there's this question of interpretation, it's important for Europe to have put forward the innovation principle. And I'm very glad, and I, because I think it was quite historical, that uh, in the last council, what we call the Competitiveness Council, if for the, the, the ones that are listener, listening, listening to, to these uh, podcasts, the, it's basically the 28 ministers of science, of innovation around the table, with the presidency of the EU, which uh, in this case, the Netherlands and the Commission, that take decisions that actually are for Europe. And we, uh, in these past uh, Competitive Council, so two weeks ago, uh, it was written, finally, for the first time, the innovation principle as uh, being a principle to be followed in our impact assessment for all our proposals and our legislation. So it's the first time in Europe that all the ministers around the table say, look, when you go through uh, a legislative process, you have to take into account also, apart from all the other things that you have to take into account, as a guideline, the innovation principle. So this was, a, I mean, it came really unnoticed because uh, it's not something that uh, everybody, apart from the specialists, are interested in, but is a really a, a big change uh, in Europe because it was the first time that the 28 agreed. Uh, okay. and, and so it's a, it's a big step for the innovation principle. Very good news for uh, the innovators. Uh, not because of what it means, but the 
because of the positive perception that that creates uh, for uh, Europe as an innovation continent. Okay, well, let's try and talk about an aspect of innovation, mm -hmm. which I think is close to your heart. I picked out a quote from you that you made recently, and I'm quoting you back, back at you, Carlos. Europe has excellent science, but we lack disruptive market-creating innovation. This is what is needed to turn our best ideas into new jobs, businesses, and opportunities. Can you explain to me what is, what is disruptive market-creating <laughs> innovation? <laughs> so the concept... <laughs> The concept is, is not mine, of course, but I think it's a very important concept. And um, it comes from uh, uh, one of the best uh, professors and uh, best minds uh, in the world called Clayton Christensen. And so he's a professor at the Harvard Business School and uh, he um, uh, created or imagined three types of innovation. One uh, that he, he calls basically the uh, innovation that actually creates uh, an increment in terms of changing one product to another product, mm -hmm. and that's sustained innovation. So when you try to have an old um, uh, bottle and then you create a new bottle, I mean, but you have the same. So that doesn't create jobs because you're just getting a, a better product. Then you have innovation that is based on efficiency, when you get better at doing something, and so you do it quicker. And then you have an innovation that he calls market-creating innovation that he used to call disruptive innovation. Right. And that's the innovation that you've seen in the, in the past when the fixed-line telephones went to the mobile phones or when the, the airline companies went to the low-cost model. Mm. That's when you tap into the non-consumption, yeah. the ones new that... Markets. New markets. The ones that they were not there, they didn't know that existed, they didn't know that they would buy that product. And the point is that that kind of market creating innovation she doesn't or uh, the, the, that type of innovation doesn't come from the core of the disciplines it comes from the intersections of different worlds if you look at these innovators that create like the, the ubers and uh, airbnbs and uh, the facebook's and and the whole new world it comes from different parts different people in different industries that the minds get together and so my point is that i think that in europe we've done a great work in terms of fundamental science we have done a great work in terms of incremental and sustained innovation getting new better products new products that substitute uh, old product but we haven't been as good as actually tapping into these market creating innovation that gets you into the future and that you need to open up you need to get people that before were not in your radar okay but now, the, now you've identified uh, diagnosed the problem as, as it were from, from your perspective but what can you and the european commission then do what is your role what is your what, what do you bring to the table is it as a funder is it as a facilitator is it as a regulator what what can you do so we we are doing two very concrete things on on these matter one is this idea of creating what we called a European Innovation Council idea. And that uh, basically is how can we change the rules somehow to grab this type of innovators. And uh, the major or the, the, the core of that, the idea, is that the process of innovation has to be top, it has to be bottom up and not top down. Right. And so, for instance, a lot of what we call our calls, our, our 
uh, the way we actually ask people to, to put proposals forward are very top-down. So we normally tell people, look, uh, we're looking at people that will study this field or this uh, type of technology, uh, and people come up saying, look, we're gonna do that, and this is our proposal. So our idea is to, in time, and I'm discussing this with the ministers around the table, to change that for a more bottom-up approach, like saying to people, look, come to us with an idea, and they ask us, what field, what, I, I mean, you know, you know better than we do. So it's more about the innovator telling you what to do and not you telling the innovator. So these will be changes that we'll do uh, for looking forward in the rules of the program to be able to capture that uh, type of innovation. Because what uh, happened in the past is that when you had people that would come from very different industries creating products that we didn't know, we didn't know how to put it, what box we would put that um, proposal. And so that's one thing. The second thing that we're looking very, uh, very closely and uh, with my colleague Jonathan Hill is on the creation of a potential fund of funds for Europe. Okay. And that's because is we that see... that part of the capital market? Exactly. Right. So he, he was, uh, he was uh, very uh, kind enough and, and he, uh, he actually uh, was, uh, took that and let me get into his package. <laughs> he allowed you in. Uh, he allowed me in, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and he's a big fan of, of that. And so looking at the major uh, problem that we have today in financing, that uh, venture capital in Europe is small, as you know, the funds are very small, so the average size of the fund is 60 million. In the US, is more than 120 million. And that makes that on the chain of, of value. You actually are, we have money for people that are creating companies, but then on the scale up, we don't have enough financing. So what we are looking at is to do something different, to create uh, or have a call that we are working on to get private investors to come and also put their own money too. So we will put a little bit of our money, but they will put more. And so that will be a kind of a private public venture uh, that we will attract the best managers, the best fund managers to bigger sizes. So it's thinking about in 500 million to 1 billion. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then you will have the ability to fund companies that you can't now. Like if you have today the need to have 100 million or 150 million funding in Europe for one project that is scaling up, you don't have it. So you go to the United States and rightly so. I mean, if you have it there, why wouldn't you do that? So it's up to us to, uh, to be able to do that. And I think that in between the, 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 the piece of the puzzle of financing and actually this idea of the European Innovation Council, which is more about the bottom-up exercise, then we will capture more of these market-creating, disruptive innovation of the future, and, and I hope we, we can prove it. <laughs> okay, well, one final question then, Carlos, to, to wrap up. You may not have realized, but you're already a third of way through your five-year term of office um, um, at the end of this month. Um, at the end of this five-year term, uh, five term of office, what would you like to be your, your biggest achievement? It could be a, uh, or be remembered by, it could be something quite small and concrete or something broad and more policy-oriented. But what, how would you like to be, look back and think, I managed to do that while I was in this position as commissioner? There's several, several things that I think that uh, I really, uh, there's one that I think is already there, the scientific advice mechanism, the chief scientific advisors, that if after five years we can say that policy in Europe is actually uh, 
basically based on scientific evidence that I can put that really that change uh, uh, but we are in the middle of the road that will be something that I would love to, to be remembered for this idea of the European Innovation Council right. but more than that uh, about two things in science that I think are crucial also for innovation which is open data and open access what do I mean by that is this change that we've, we are going through and now the ministers of the council are all uh, with us to change for a paradigm where scientists have to pay to read to a paradigm where they are free to read right. the article. So the articles are on a system that you are free to read it. So you don't have to pay the subscription. And that is major for innovation in science because today the name of the game is how, how you manage all these amounts of data, text and data mining, how do you access that and, and if you can do it freely uh, then it's a, a new uh, world that will come there. And, uh, and you know, I mean, it's, I, I don't think I'm a politician that wants to be remembered about big things. I want mm -hmm. to be remembered about doing the obvious things. <laughs> okay. Carlos Moidash, thank you very much for your You're time. Welcome. You're welcome.